to the Ottoman History Podcast. For comments, questions, or contact, visit us at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. The following podcast refers to supplementary materials, which can be located on the website at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nick Danforth, and today I'm speaking with Chris Graydon, who will be discussing Turkish knockoff toothpaste, legal imperialism, and the pervasive racism of early 20th century American marketing. That's quite the grab bag of fascinating topics, Chris. Yeah, they don't have that much to do with each other generally, but they all seem to come together in the case of a legal battle over trademarks in early Republican Turkey particularly with regards to a case involving um, an alleged knockoff of the popular Kolinos toothpaste, an American brand. In 1928, there was a rather involved and prolonged legal battle between the Kolinos company, which had acquired a trademark to market its toothpaste in Turkey, and you guys can see in the PDF a picture of uh, their packaging and their trademark patent. And Kolinos brought the distributor of the Kohinoor toothpaste in Turkey to court over trademark infringement. And I'll let you guys see the two packages uh, displayed side by side. Here you see Kohinoor's toothpaste packaging is quite similar to the Kohinoor that was being marketed by the Turkish company. So although there is quite a similarity between these two packagings and one could safely argue that uh, Kohinoor was at least bordering on trademark infringement in choosing that style of packaging. Kohinoor actually lost multiple cases in different really? Turkish courts. Um, in one case, the judge ruled that um, the claim of damages was less than 1,000 uh, kurush, uh, and therefore they could not make such a claim. Uh, orally in a, in the claims court, and so they found all sorts of ways around um, convicting this uh, Turkish company of trademark uh, infringement. Now, a man named H. W. Stock, who was the patent agent for Kolinos, wrote to the Turkish attorneys associated with the case, saying that he was sure that the judges could be convinced of the illegality of this trademark infringement, but they're not yet accustomed to such matters sort of in the legal realm because this was trademark law was recent in Turkey it was sort of one of these uh, early Republican legal reforms designed to bring uh, Turkey's legal system uh, more in line with Western legal systems and in fact um, uh, stock alludes to this and he refers to the fact that Turkey has quote-unquote put its house in order legally, so to speak, by enacting Western-style laws. And, of course, this raises the whole issue of something that Turan Kayaolu talks about in a, in, a, in a comparative perspective, the issue of legal imperialism, wherein European powers use legal measures, sometimes legal privileges, or a combination of coercion and incentives to adopt certain legal reforms within countries, he uses uh, Japan, China, and the Ottoman Empire as examples, to help further the interests of their agents in these quote-unquote host countries. And uh, the form this took in the Ottoman Empire was 
granting special sort of legal immunity or exemptions from Europeans within Ottoman courts on the basis that the Ottoman legal system did not conform to European modern legal standards. And so thereby the, forcing the Ottoman Empire to adopt uh, European legal standards in the name of protecting its own sovereignty. Although as I understand it, one of the things the modern Turkish Republic did was eliminate these special legal exemptions. Yes, but at the same time it was adopting things that were considered quote-unquote modern Western legal codes. Such as copyright laws which gave advantages to American corporations. Precisely. And as we can see, in, while in theory these reforms were adopted very quickly, there's sort of a delay in the implementation or a failure to implement by the courts who are not maybe not acquainted or not willing or simply don't interpret this in, case yeah. as an as an infringement of trademark. And the case becomes interesting with a countersuit from a Istanbul University uh, professor, Mustafa Hakkı, who is the alleged chemist who created the Kohinoor, the Turkish knockoff toothpaste of Kolinos. Um, he claims that his reputation was badly damaged because of this over two year long legal battle that appeared in the newspapers and he, he claims damages, monetary and moral damages, in excess of $10,000. And what Haku says is his reputation, which had been without stain during the 26 years that he was a professor at the university, was worth more than a million dollars to him. And so he fires back with this suit. Obviously, uh, Kolinos and their lawyers dismiss this countersuit, but it seems that their legal, their legal battle over Kohinoor is lost. Now, and that's something interesting in itself that as Western powers impose these legal regimes, these set of supposedly universal laws that they think are going to work to their advantage, oftentimes this also creates opportunities for people from other countries to then respond in a similar way and try to pursue their own rights in this same legal system. All right, and, and on this issue of piracy and trademarks, of course, this is alive and well today. Um, Certainly. Maybe some people would interpret this as a weapon of the weak, subverting the unequal power dynamic in the capitalist order by disregarding these rules altogether and producing cheap knockoffs that uh, undermine the profits of American other foreign countries. And so I mentioned at the beginning um, racism in American marketing. And the way that intersects with this case is within the sort of lengthy memorandum, which is a, a 50 or so page essay, explaining in great detail with reference to a number of legal precedents why Kohinoor was a ripoff of the American toothpaste Kolinos. So I'll refer you guys again to the slideshow where you'll see a number of images from this memorandum. Uh, the first image shows uh, a case in which uh, a company marketing Coke, K-O-K-E, was convicted of uh, trademark infringement on the Coca-Cola's company trademark and you can see that the two trademarks strongly resemble each other and it's very clear. Now in other cases within this memorandum uh, the trademark infringement is not exactly clear at first glance because the trademarks may seem somewhat different but the judge ruled that they were sufficiently similar enough to be considered deceptive. In this case, for example, it looks like two coffee companies that are simply using elephants as their logos, but very different elephants. Right, exactly. And the judge decided that the Upper Assam Tea Company, the 
plaintiff in the case had the sole right to market tea with an elephant logo. Here we see a similar example. In one case it's a bulldog, in the other case it's a terrier. But in both cases they're bottling companies using dogs with a little colored circle around them to market their services. Now this sort of legal rationale generally makes sense and proceeds logically but takes a strange turn when we see some of the other brands who have been who have successfully defended their right to use their trademark against an alleged case of uh, infringement. Here we have the Aunt Jemima's Mills Company, the familiar Aunt Jemima, the pretty much uh, blatantly racist trademark of this uh, pancake company, um, that won a case against the uh, Blair Milling Company marketing their Sambo uh, pancake products, where you can see that even though one is a man and one is a woman, one is a chef and one is an aunt, both shared appealing to a certain racist stereotype about African Americans being employed in the marketing of these pancakes and the Aunt Jemima's company was successful in this case. Um, interestingly enough Aunt Jemima was involved in a second case if you move to the next slide. Here we have on the left once again Aunt Jemima um, which uh, successfully defended its right to this uh, trademark against Kirkland Distributing using the um, image on the right of the boy eating the watermelon. And uh, I'll give you guys what the judge in the case said verbatim because he pretty much sums up the sensibilities and all the implications of upholding Aunt Jemima's sole right to the trademark. And what he says is, the only question left is whether the marks are so similar as to be likely to create confusion in trade. It would be difficult to imagine a more flagrant violation of the statute than the one here presented. The red core of the watermelon, with its seed spots, held under the chin of the negro, is a good reproduction of the red bandana with its spots tied around the neck of the negress. A mere glance at the marks is convincing. No evidence of confusion is necessary, nor can any amount of fine-spun discrimination withdraw the case from the direct operation of the statute. And so here we have a legal ruling basically saying that Aunt Jemima has the sole right to use racism in the marketing of these kinds of pancakes and other products sold by Aunt Jemima Mills. Now I want to finish with one last image from the memorandum that really drives this point home. On the left we see an image of an Indian on a horse with a rifle being used to market uh, for a feed company. On the right we find an Arab on a horse with a rifle being used as the trademark of another feed company. And in this case the latter was held as deceptively similar to the former. Why? I think we need some insight into the psychology of uh, the American consumers at this time to see how these are so similar that they could be considered the same thing and even infringement. In this case the first company is claiming the sole rights to market horse feed with a uncivilized tribal person on a horse as its logo. Which has been held up in the court of law of the United States. And so I'm not sure if these two themes have come together that
that clearly, but on one hand we have a sort of situation of legal imperialism and an expectation by the United States in Turkey that Turkey will hold up certain trademark uh, laws that are common in the West. And on the other hand, we have the American legal system not only allowing racism in marketing, which was quite pervasive in that time period, but actually court cases involving trademark infringements based solely on the fact that one company has the sole right to racist marketing. So I guess the question is, what do we have here? Is this a case of Turkish copyright infringement or of American legal imperialism? Yes, Nick, I think it was a little both, and at any rate, it does tell us quite a bit about the legal foundations of our modern capitalist system. It certainly does. We'd like to thank the listeners for being here with us today. I'd like to thank Chris Graydon. And of course, if anyone would like to find out more about the topic, you can go to the blog post on Autumn History.